So this morning, what we want to do is continue our, our series uh, that we, we've called Repeat the Sounding Joy. And I didn't do a great job setting that up last week. And so let me explain to you just a little bit about what that is and why we're calling it Repeat the Sounding Joy. This Christmas, what we want to continue to do is look at some passages in Scripture that, that still, although they're not known as Christmas passages, they still tell us the truths about the Christmas story. So last week, we began by looking through Matthew chapter 1, and of all places, we read through a genealogy that led up to the coming of Christ, and we talked about how, how God was involved in every aspect of every story of His people, and He was never once taken by surprise, and He was able to overcome some of the most impossible of situations. And then, then we looked at just some of the names on the list, and what you realized when you looked at those names is that God used some pretty improbable people to, to lead to the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. That was the, 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 the picture of hope last week. And today what our picture is, what our characteristic is, is the, as the Scarvins just said, is today is the, the picture of love. And, and I think for us to be able to understand from Scripture what um, picture is painted for us about love, we actually need to define what love is. Good luck. So if you do just a real quick Google search, because Google knows everything. What you're going to find is all kinds of definitions for love, and most of them are just crazy wackadoo. Uh, there's a great one, actually, this one I read this morning that made me giggle a little bit, but it's talking about I, I woke up this morning and I, was, I had butterflies in my stomach and, and goosebumps all over my arms, so either I'm in love or I have smallpox. I think sometimes our, our, our thinking of love is just that. It's that warm, fuzzy, sentimental emotionalism that sets over us when we, we see someone that we're certainly interested in. Maybe, maybe it's you, you, you uh, meet your bride or groom-to-be at a wedding, and your eyes lock across the room, and the music plays softly, and you make your way, and that, would you like to dance with me? And you do this incredible salsa dance. That was my salsa dance, so... <laughs> You can pray for Stephanie. Um, but, or or, or it's, I, I can't stop thinking about you. I dream about you all the time. I need to talk to you on the phone all the time. I need to text you all the time. Um, I have seen numbers recently of text messages sent during a month, and they number into the thousands of text messages as a result of a loving relationship. Thousands of text messages. How do you send thousands of text messages Unless you text like somebody who I like to make fun of, Pastor Mark Andrews, <laughs> who doesn't just text a lot, but he texts single words. And so you know when Mark is texting you because your phone goes beep, 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 because he sends like, it's one, one text will be just fine. How do you send thousands of text messages? Well, when you're oogly googly in love, that mushy, gross, sentimental ugh, love, you can send thousands of text messages. That's not the love that we're talking about this morning. The biblical love that we're talking about is, a, is an action. It's not a feeling. It's a verb. The love that we're talking about this morning is a love, a, 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 an action of a person who is always giving to the object of their love. It's a, it's a ferocious commitment to see the other person experience the best in life, no matter what the personal cost. It's the idea of, of being selfless and that love that you, you do to another person, that service that you offer to another person, it never changes whether the love that you have given to that person is, is returned to you or not. 
That's called loving with integrity. Integrity is making a decision to do something regardless of the outcome, regardless of the personal cost. That's love. It's a, a personal choice to serve one another person, another person and to elevate them above yourself. And so when we come to our passage this morning, so I'm going to encourage you, take your Bibles, go to, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, this is certainly by all means not a, a passage that a lot of people think of when you think of Christmas texts, but I think we see the very picture of love in Romans 8. In Romans chapter 8, what we get to see is, is Paul kind of lays some things out, and, and the way he does it, and I'm, I'm going to take Paul to task, and so please forgive me because I know if I'm taking the Apostle Paul to task, I'm wrong, um, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31, listen to how he begins this whole treatment. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, stop right there. What? If God is for us. If God is for us. Think about that for a minute. Now, now, if God really is on our side, if God really is for us, if God really does desire good things for us, if God really loves us, and, and, and you look at that and you're like, Paul, why would you use the word if? How could you possibly use the word if? Just by doing a, a quick run through of, of Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to use this just to get us through it real quick, and I'm going to put these verses right in front of you. You look at Romans chapter 8, verse 15. He says this, if you are in Jesus Christ, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So, so the argument here is, is, is if God is for us, Paul, how could you say if? By being in Jesus Christ, we've experienced full adoption. You understand what adoption means, right? It means that, that coming along with God's adopting of us into his family, we receive the full rights and privileges as a child of God. If God is for us, Paul? Some of you are nervous because I'm challenging Paul. I promise. I'll come around. I promise. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Just fast forward a couple of verses. If children then we're also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that also we might also be glorified with him. So, so the picture is if we've been adopted by God and we're his children, we have all the rights and privileges of being a child of God, then we also get the same inheritance as a child of God. You know, if, if God is for us, I'm just going to throw this out there. Now let's, let's just imagine, just for a moment, if God is for us, if God is for us in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. Because we do not know what to pray for as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. See, see if God was really for you, then, then he would leave a comforter for you. And he would never leave you alone. See, if, if God was for you, he'd leave his Spirit and his spirit would not only empower you to do all the things that God has asked you to do, all the things Christ has commanded you to do, but the spirit would also speak on your behalf when you are so broken you don't have words. That's what this is talking about. We don't even know how to pray. Have you ever reached a situation like that? I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know what words to use. I don't even know what to say. It's in those moments as we fall on our faces before God that the spirit himself carries our prayers to the ears of God. 
So if, if God is for us, if God is for us, Romans 8.30, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. I am not going to spend the next 35 minutes going over the theology of this verse, because it is jam-packed. A lot of good men have died in the process of trying to define their theology on this verse. I will not be one for today. We can talk about it later, but I will point this out. Those he have, has called, he has justified. He's justified. You know what that means? If you are in Christ and you are his, then in God's eyes, it's as if you never sinned. All of your guilt has been absorbed by Christ himself on the cross. All of the guilt of your sin has been absorbed by Jesus Christ. All of the wrath of God that was, should have been poured out on you was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross. If God be for us, the one who's in Christ is justified. But I love the end of this verse. It's amazing. Not only is the one who is in Christ justified, but the one who is in Christ is, what's that last word? Glorified. You understand how this works, right? So you, you, there's, there's salvation, that's, that's justification, and then there's sanctification, which is after you've come to know Christ and you are in Christ, now there's this lifelong process that happens while you are still breathing air, that you are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, being transformed into the very image of Jesus Christ, and that is a lifelong pursuit that will never be completed on this side of glory. But then one day when your eyes close for the last time and they open in glory and you're face to face with Jesus Christ, what happens next is this, you are glorified, it is complete, you are mature, you are perfect in Christ for all of eternity. So, so if you are in Christ, now can, can, I, can I just throw something at you that's kind of amazing about that? As Paul is explaining that about you, he doesn't look at this and say, okay, so now because Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead, you have been justified and someday soon you too will reach glorification. Eh -eh. Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead and so you have been justified. And as a completed act, that word glorified is a past event with ongoing results. You're already in God's eyes glorified. You don't feel like that. And you got aches and pains today? Anybody slip in the ice this week? Maybe just yesterday? Maybe you slipped on the ice on Wednesday, I don't know where you were. <laughs> That's an evidence of the fact that you're not there yet, but in God's eyes, he's like, no, that one's mine. He's glorified. Yep, I own him. God be for us? But I skipped one. I skipped probably the one that gives me the most goosebumps and I have to be the most careful of because I can end up yelling at you and you all think I'm mad. I'm not mad. I, I just like this one. Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. None. So as as you, you clap, okay, listen, if we're going to clap, we're going all in. We're not going to be like, yeah, just kidding. All right, good. <laughs> good. Got to do clapping lessons. Come on. Um, I got a Bible. I can't clap at the same time. And I'm not making light of it, but I think what we need to understand is that what Paul is doing, he's using a figure of speech. He's using a, a mechanism of argumentation to get our attention when he says, if God be for us. Because, but in fact, what he's actually saying is not if. He's saying, since God is for us. It's reductio ad absurdum. See, I can't even get Latin right. I can't get English right. I don't know why I tried Latin. Reductio ad absurdum. There we go. 
It means he's, he's boiling it down to such a point, it's just simply absurd. If God be for us, of course God is for us. Folks, I just went through a few verses in Romans 8. I didn't walk through the entire New Testament, Old Testament, talking about how God has sought to serve us. So in Romans 8 alone, we see that God is for us. And so what Paul really is saying is, what do we say about these things? Because God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but he offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? In this moment, what Paul says is, let me, let me go to legal terms for you. Who dares bring this court to case? Case to court. Wow! I was so convinced and convicted about it. Did you hear that? <laughs> Who, what lawyer is like, I got an idea. I will take that one because I want to stand before God the judge and sue God because that'll go great. I'm going to bring this person and drag him into court. I'm going to make accusation against the child of the judge so that he might feel that he is condemned. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect. Um, it's important that you grab this and understand this. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that Satan himself, the father of lies, that's what the Gospel of John tells us, he's the father of lies. The Satan himself daily accuses those who are in Christ. Every morning, every evening. And he continues to make accusation over and over again. And, and let, me, let me just make sure that you understand this, man. Satan isn't stupid. When he makes accusations, he doesn't make accusations that you'd like, what? That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I mean, he, he doesn't make an accusation, and, and I, sorry, I always go to this, but I will. He doesn't make an accusation, Frank, you're having a terrible hair day. Well, that's not going to hurt my feelings. Whatever. I've had a terrible hair day for about 15 years now. I'm over it. Now, his accusation is going to have just a little bit of truth in it, and he's just going to twist it. And he's going, to, he's going to get this thing in your head and allow it to noodle around a little bit just to mess with your confidence, just to mess with your understanding of and appreciation of God's love for you. He's just going to twist it just a little bit. So, so for me, it's going to be this. Frank, I can't believe you kept tripping over your words Sunday morning. I want you to think about that all Sunday afternoon. Maybe you didn't prepare enough. Maybe you should prepare more. Maybe you should worry about it a little bit. See, that would be an effective attack of the accuser on me because he knows full well those are some of the things that I wrestle with. The tape plays in my head every Sunday afternoon until that nap, that glorious nap settles in over me. And I just pass out and I'm like, oh, Satan, sorry, hanging up on you now. That's a gift of God. That's right. Especially if the Ravens game is on. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got an amen from the front row, so I went with it. Um, <laughs> so Satan's accusations are not foolish. Satan's accusations are somewhat accurate, aren't they? So, so think back to his original accusation in the garden against God. He said, Eve, has God said not to? That you can't eat from every tree in the garden. No, that's not what God said. 
God said, eat from every tree in the garden, except for that one. See, Satan, the accuser, put this little bit of a twist on it. He's not foolish. But, but here's this amazing thing that we need to wrap our heads around. As Satan accuses us, that verse continues, verse 33. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. In that moment when Satan is whispering in your ear, you must remember that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, absorbing all of your sin and all of the wrath of God for your sin, at that very moment, he died for all of your sins. In that moment, you in God's eyes have been justified, forever set apart, forever sanctified, forever forgiven. But that verse continues. Who's the one that's going to condemn you? Okay, let's talk about this for a moment. Jesus Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised. I mean, think about that. He's like, so Satan's making an accusation against you. Satan's making an accusation against you. And you begin to think about your sin. You think about your failures. You think about your, your falling. And then what you recognize is this, that Jesus Christ not only died for your sin, but his payment for sin was so acceptable, there was some left over. And so he rose from the dead because sin couldn't hold him down. It was more than enough to cover your sin. And so, so what he says is, as those accusations come, how could you possibly feel condemned? Jesus Christ, he died for your sins, and yet even more than that, he rose from the dead. And then verse, uh, let's continue with verse 34, he also is at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. I mean, so it didn't just be like, okay, Jesus died, Jesus rose, see you later, Jesus, never get to see him. No! It's Jesus died, Jesus rose, and right now he's at the right hand of the Father, and he makes intercession for us. He's interceding for us. He's representing us. He's being our reference. I mean, I don't know who's on your resume as a reference. As a child of God, you have Jesus himself. As a child of God, you have Jesus at the right hand of the Father, responding to all of the accusations of Satan. Maybe, 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 um, i got to be real careful. Um, I understand that. I don't necessarily follow that all the time, but I know I have to be. Um, <laughs> I don't want to uh, make light, make fun, minimize, particularly if I'm talking about Jesus. And I don't want to lower Jesus in our esteem. But, but I want you to see the absolute foolishness of the lie we fall for every day. Do you recognize the fact that Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and he is daily making intercession for us? And as he's there, Satan approaches the throne and says, hey, have you seen that guy, Frank? He lost his temper today. He lost his temper today. And Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, says, <coughs> um, that one's mine. Okay, now, think about that. The accuser's coming every day, morning and evening. So at some point, and again, I want to be very careful not to, to lower the esteem of Jesus, but I, I think you need to see the foolishness of these accusations of Satan. There stands Jesus, and Satan comes again and says, hey, hey, I got him this time. Frank got angry again today, and Jesus is probably like, oh, I got that one. But, but you know what? Frank was speeding in a 45-mile-an-hour zone. He was going 65. Would never happen, just in case you're wondering. It'd be at least 70. Um, <laughs> just kidding. And, and Jesus could be like, oh, got that one too. I mean, it's over and 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 it's over again, time and time and time and time and time again. Do you get how crazy that is? 
And Satan continues to, to try to tempt you to despair, is what uh, Before the Throne says. He's trying to bring you to that point where you're like, I don't know if God's got my back. And yet every time Satan makes an accusation, if you are in Jesus Christ, Christ says, hey, there's an old hymn, it's beautiful. Hey, Father, that one's mine. That one's mine. So so what Paul is saying is in those moments when somebody brings an accusation against you, what you need to remember is that Jesus Christ is the one who died. He's even more than that. He's the one who was raised. Even more than that, he's the one at the right hand of the God and he's interceding for us. Verse 35, he just continues to ramp it up. He says, "So, so, so considering that, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? I mean, what he's saying is, can, can all of the groaning of the world around us as it groans for its creator in its fallen state, in its sinfulness, can, can all of those sinners who surround you, can they cause you to be separated from the love that Christ has for you? Can, can all of those things, and I think it's very interesting, and I, and I may be wrong, but I think the reason Paul has it in there, in fact, the very next verse he quotes an Old Testament passage, he says this, because it's been written, he's just gone through this list of, of um, problems that rise against us in the world that we live today, and, and he gets to that verse in 36, he says, as written, because of you, we're being put to death all day long, we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. So, so what Paul is saying is, hey, 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 bad things are going to happen in your life. Difficulty is going to come. We live in a sin-soaked world. You can't escape disaster. You can't escape heartache and hardship. I mean, the things that he lists here, affliction, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword, those are serious things. And he says, you, you, you stop I don't know who planted this idea in your mind that when you go through difficult times that somehow you've been separated from the love that Christ has for you. You know who's placed that in your mind? It's an accusation of Satan himself again. Oh, things just went really badly for you. Probably because God doesn't like you very much today. He saw that dark thought that you had. Oh, people are spreading rumors about you on Facebook. Ah, uh, you know why that is? God's mad at you. And Paul says, hold on. Are any of these things going to be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 37, a resounding, no. No, but in all of these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I don't want to get into a, a whole treatise on the conquerors and we're in the Lord's army. Not a lot of, key. okay, okay. So I, I thought I might get some yes sirs out of there, but and somebody giggled. That was good. All right, so uh, but I don't want to get into that, but I want to just deal with that word just a little bit. That word conquerors means to overcome in a huge way. It really could be translated as a super conqueror. We, we are not separated from the love of Christ, but instead in these difficulties, in all of these things, we are super conquerors through him who loved us. Not because we're anything ourselves. And no, he just referred to us in verse 36 as sheep being led to the slaughter. But we're victorious sheep. We're victorious sheep not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us already. Yes, he died for us. And even more than that, he was raised again. And he's at the right hand of the Father and he makes intercession for us. We are victorious sheep. And this is where he lands in verse 38. And I love this. For I am persuaded 
that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. <laughs> All right, good. Um, it's interesting, when I, when I first, you first get that, and, and, and as somebody who's supposed to get up here and talk about that for a little while, um, I was like, all right, I'm going to study all those words out, I'm going to figure out what all those things mean, and I'm going to get the nuances that are there, and as I wrestled with it, what I, what I came to the conclusion of is this, Paul's not worried about the specifics of that list. He just wants to make sure you understand that, that he's talking about everything, I'm going to list everything. In fact, so much so, he goes through his list. Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, nor any other created thing. I mean, he want to make sure he's got all his bases covered. So he wants you to know that, that he's talking about everything so that you'll know that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. And as we read that and try to expound upon each of those things, what, what I came to the conclusion of is, is we're not supposed to understand what every individual thing means. What we're supposed to do is reflect on the fact that there is not a single thing in this world that can separate us from the love of God. Do you remember what we were defining love as? It's an action that's always giving. It's a ferocious commitment to the best for another person, no matter the personal cost. True love is selfless, and it doesn't change whether the love given is returned or not. God has loved us with that love. John 15, 13 makes reference to it. The greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Has Jesus served us? Has he been ferociously committed to us? Well, let's see. He willingly left heaven and came in the manger and he took on flesh. He willingly walked a life where he lived in humble obedience to God's will for him like no one else ever had before or ever will since. He willingly laid down his life on the cross. No one took it from him. He laid it down for you. He was buried in the tomb. And three days later, he took his life back up. He burst from the tomb, revealing himself to the women at the tomb first, then to his disciples. He ascended into glory where now he's on the right hand of the Father interceding for us every day. Has, has Jesus been ferociously committed to you? Now let's think about that for a second. There was a verse that was mentioned a little earlier. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. I think sometimes we quote that and don't think about it. For God loved you. Bill. Jay. John. Lisa. God loved you, Chad and Mark. Kevin. Stephanie and Sue and Sarah. 
For God so loved you that he was ferociously committed to you and that while you were separated from him because of your rebellion and because of your sin, he sent Jesus to come, take on flesh, and die where you should have died. For God so loved you that he gave his only son so that if you would believe in him, not just, oh, yep, Jesus, he was a historical figure, like I believe in Abraham Lincoln, not like that at all, but if you would lean on him and trust in him and understand that, man, that you can do whatever you want and think that it's gaining you favor in God's eyes. It is not. There is only one way to please the Father, and that's through the way, the truth, and the life, and his name is Jesus. So God loved you so much. He gave his only son. If you would believe in him, you wouldn't spend all of eternity separated from him but that you'd have everlasting life. So, so does God love us? This is love. <laughs> Not that we love God. But he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The very message of Christmas is that God showed up. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for, for your ridiculously ferocious love. God, you have made sure you overcome so many things for us while we were sinning against you, while we were in rebellion against you, God, you still showed up. Father, I thank you that we can know love, not as defined by the world or any other person, but we can know love as defined by a good and holy God. And Lord, I pray for the soul of the one who might be here this morning, who still lives separated from you, Maybe they know all about you. They just haven't trusted that you love them. They haven't trusted that you are for them. Lord, today I pray you'd open their dark eyes. That you'd help them to cry out with their heart, with everything they have. Lord, save me. We know salvation comes from Christ and Christ alone and in no other. So Lord, I pray today would be the day that many who are sitting here would cross from death to life because Christ has carried them. We love you. Nowhere near as much as we should. Certainly nowhere near as much as you loved us. Father, I pray we'd reflect and remember of your great love. It's in Jesus' incredible name I pray. Amen.